The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And now let me invite you all to open with me in uh, the scriptures together to Psalm 133. I hope you'll take your copy of God's Word and open with us here to Psalm 133. Uh, We are very much nearing the end of the collection of these Psalms of Ascents in the book of Psalms, running from 120 to Psalm 134. And we come again to a very short Psalm this morning, but uh, thankfully this Psalm is very, very clear about what it's about. And it's a delightful topic. Psalm 133, you can see in the title, is all about the unity of the people of God. The title is When Brothers Dwell in Unity. So we'll be thinking this morning about Uh, the life of the church, the life of the people of God gathered together, and the unity that God gives to them and that we are called to maintain. So, as we think about this, we're also well aware of the fact that oftentimes there is not unity in the world. We're painfully aware of that. There is not unity in the societies and institutions of the world and in seats of government, whether they be international, federal, state-level, local government. There's oftentimes disunity. But what about in the church? What about in the church? Now, unfortunately, uh, we understand that there are sometimes disunity in the church, divisions in the church. It's well known that if you want to find a church that's a perfect church, you should not join it because you will ruin it, because there are no perfect churches this side of heaven because we are made up collectively of people, fallen men and women who are seeking to do right and seeking to live in righteousness, but never in perfection. In fact, unfortunately, it's well known oftentimes in the world around us that the church is oftentimes a place of dispute. Now, this is a true story that I'm about to read to you uh, very briefly. I've, I've used this illustration in the past, but I just can't get over it. And I think it's funny and sad at the same time. Listen to the, about the church, the Presbyterian Church of Centerville, Georgia, with a population of 5,000. Local Presbyterian Church had a conflict in the year 1911. And the conflict was whether or not to collect the offering before the sermon or after the sermon. And a major rift happened as a result of that argument. And the church split over the issue of when to collect the offering and reconstituted as the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. Four years after that, another split occurred whether or not to have fresh flowers on the chancel every single week or not, or whether it was right in the sight of God to use fake flowers ever The argument ensued and the church split again. The church was now called Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. And then from 1915 to 1929, the church split another seven times over various issues. And by the year 1931, the church was now named Third Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. And then until 1975, 39 different splits happened in the same church. The last one being whether or not it was appropriate for you to check your email on the Lord's Day or not. They had a fight about it and an argument ensued and a church was split. The people who thought it was okay to check their email on the Lord's Day stayed and renamed the church, the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church. And the people who insisted that it was ungodly and unrighteous to check email on the Lord's Day renamed a new church 
the Presbyterian, totally reformed, covenantal, Westminster, Sabbatarian, regulative principle, credo-communionist, amillennial, presuppositional church of Centerville. And they had no church sign because their name would not fit on their sign. Well, that seems like a joke. Unfortunately, it's not. It's actually true. 48 splits to one church. Now, I know some of you have experienced dissension and disunity in churches, whether in this church or perhaps in another church. And it's difficult to make light of it, but it's also a reality of disunity in the church of God. What should we think of those things? What does the Bible have to say to us about that, the virtue of unity? Let's hear from God's Word this morning in Psalm 133. But first, let's ask His blessing upon the Scriptures that we might read, mark, learn, and understand. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we come to Your Word this morning because we believe that it is the Word of life which You, by divine inspiration, give to us the very things which You would reveal that we might know and grow and live in such a way to please You. And so, Lord, I pray that as You moved David to record these words for us, may the Spirit that so moved David also move us to rest upon our hearts, to illuminate our minds, to give energy to our hands that we might commit ourselves to the unity of the people of God. And so, Lord, bless Your Word to us this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Word of God from Psalm 133. When brothers dwell in unity, a song of ascents of David. This is the Word of God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And so may he write its eternal truth on our hearts this morning as we consider his words to us in Psalm 1. 33. Remember what the Psalms of Ascents are. They are the collections of psalms that worshipers would use as they traveled to Zion to ascend the hill of Zion to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple together. They would sing these songs on the way, in the gates, within the temple courts, and then on the way home again. This is the songbook of the worshiping people of God of Israel. And what greater topic would there be to think about the, the people of God gathering together, then their essential unity, their communion together and fellowship and community as the people of God. This psalm is written by David, as you see in the subscription, probably during a time when unity was a brand new thing for Israel. Because uh, if you recall the history of Israel before David's reign, it was rather tumultuous. Uh, before there was kings, there was a period of judges, and the regular theme of life in Israel was everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did it their own way and preferred their own path, and there was disunity and dissension and no leadership in Israel. But then the first king, 
the first king of Israel named Saul was a king who was not righteous in the sight of God and who preferred his own wisdom rather than the Lord's ways. And so a new king was raised up named David, but before he could ascend the throne, there was competition in Israel, almost a civil war in Israel. And so after the period of judges was a period of unrest in the new monarchy of Israel. But for the first time, when David is ascending the throne of Israel and bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, which we read about earlier in the Psalms of Ascents, the people of God, for the first time in many generations, enjoy a settled peace. Now, oftentimes in world history, we speak about the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, as Rome ruled over a global empire, we can think of this as something of a, the peace of David coming upon Israel, where for the first time there was unity among the people and their leadership. And so there is a decision, there is a desire to rejoice in this unity, which is likely when David wrote this psalm. And you see how he's exalting, how he's delighting in verse 1. Behold, Take a look. Pay attention. How good and pleasant it is, verse 1, when brothers dwell in unity. This is speaking about not just the worshiping life of the people of God gathering together in Israel and Jerusalem, but their communal life together as the people of God. When they all dwell together under the peace of a sovereign, their king David, but it's not just about the activity in Jerusalem. It's all through the land. And they're saying, what a delight it is to no longer be in strife with one another. To no longer fight. Isn't it exhausting to fight? Isn't it tiresome and wearisome to be uh, in times of tumultuous days and disagreement and disunity? And David is rejoicing, behold, how good it is. It is both good and pleasant. Sometimes there are things that are good that are not pleasant, right? Think maybe of a child taking some cough medicine that is good for them, but it's not pleasant. But David is saying, no, it is both good and pleasant. The people of God dwelling together in unity. And there's several things that I hope come to mind for you when you think about that. Because, of course, you and I are not uh, Israelite pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem. But we are, nevertheless, the people of God, assembling together, gathering to express our unity. You know, what we did earlier in this service is, is not a small thing. It's actually a rather important thing. When you and I confessed our faith together, when we said, I believe, and you and I were confessing words that generations of Christian believers have confessed and we identified ourselves with that unity of the people of God and that apostolic faith which has been handed down through all the generations. That apostolic creed that doesn't know divisions of denominations, but rather the Catholicity, the unity is what that word means. The communion of the people of God and the faith that we believe. And of course, in that Apostles' Creed, we confess the communion of saints the unity of the people of God. I've said before that one of the most delightful things for me to be a part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church at our General Assembly meeting, the most moving thing that happens is that the last item of business is to read the role of names of ruling and teaching elders that have gone to be with the Lord in the last calendar year, and those names are read 
interspersed with verses of the hymn for all the saints as we praise God for the faithful men and women who have given themselves to the life of the church and who now enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ. And you and I as a church community, as a church family, enjoy the communion of saints. I don't know if you're thinking about it, especially on Sunday mornings, how we gather, at least right now in our homes, but we're still together. There is still a unity and communion of the saints and the Spirit of God that joins us together, both here on earth with the church and here in the church in heaven as well. The church triumphant. There is this essential unity that the people of God have. And David rejoices at this thought when he speaks of the goodness and the pleasantness of this reality. The unity of the people of God is not some fantasy. It's not some idealized dream. But sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it, when there is strife. Sometimes the idea of unity in the church seems like something that we couldn't possibly attain. And yet, notice how David rejoices in the unity of the people of God. But notice also where it comes from. He gives two pictures in verses 2 and the first half of verse 3. He's essentially saying it comes from this place. It's like this. He's giving a metaphor, these two illustrations. The first one comes from the priesthood and the sacrificial ritual. Look again at verse 2. The unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. He says it's like this picture of the high priest being anointed with oil and the oil is poured on top of his head and it runs down his head and falls down his cheeks and descends down his beard until it gets to his robe and it flows down. Do you see that point of emphasis? Running down, running down. There's a reason why the emphasis here in this picture. It's a picture of blessing that is poured out and descends as the priest offers sacrifices, uh, which would eventually start to smell. The priest is associated with this, and he is anointed, he is perfumed, so that the, the odor no longer remains on him, but the pleasant fragrance comes both to him and to the people that he is then around. A descending pleasantry. It flows down and benefits others. Now, a contrary example to this, I think about uh, mission trips and sleeping in a, uh, a room of 20 junior high and high school boys sweating all week long. They're supposed to take showers. They bring their dirty shoes into the room. It starts to stink. And the solution to this is we should spray a bunch of Axe body spray and deodorizer to, to perfume the odor. And what you get is a mixture, not of pleasantries, but horridness mixed with more hardness. And it's, it's, it's repulsive to everybody around it. And this is the opposite point. This perfuming comes upon, flows down, and blesses others. It overwhelms them and pleases them. And the illustration continues, but it changes in verse 3. Suddenly we're no longer in the priesthood. We're now in the mountains. And David's talking about this particular mountain, Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in Israel. Um, three to four times taller than Mount Zion. But around Mount Hermon is an, an arid plain. and It's more of a desert region of modern-day Syria but Mount Hermon is known for being snow-capped a large majority of the year. 
and the overwhelming dew that comes upon Mount Hermon day by day that flows down and then benefits the vegetation all around it, actually feeding the majority of the Jordan River is from the dew from Mount Hermon. And Hermon is blessed in the sight of the people of God because of the dew that it pours out. And David is saying, like the oil that anoints the head of the priest and then flows down to bless the people, like the dew that runs down and falls down to bless the fields of Zion and water its crops, that is what unity is like as God pours out unity to bless his people. And this is the essential point here. He concludes in verse 3, For there, these pictures in Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. Here's the point of all of this song. That David is here emphasizing that the Lord is the one who blesses his people with unity. That unity comes from above. So listen very carefully. God in the Scriptures does not call on you and I to create unity. God is the one that creates unity, and He calls you and I to preserve it, not create it. It's already an existing reality. God has made it, and He calls on us to preserve it. Only God can create true unity, and God has given us this unity in Jesus Christ. In our union and communion with Him, we are also united together with all those who are in union and communion with Him. That is to say, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith is to have a relationship with all those who also share in that relationship with Christ. We are united together in communion. We don't create the communion. We maintain it. Our job is to maintain the unity of the Spirit of God in the bond of peace. God gives the unity, and it's our job not to, to be so crass, not to screw it up. God blesses it and He calls on us to steward it, not to take it for granted and to maintain it. Now, here's a bit of irony in the psalm. Because again, this is written by David. And David is saying, the end of verse 3, For there, in Zion, where the king dwells, which at this time is David. And it is under the Davidic kingdom that, yes, did indeed unify Israel, but it is also within David's lifetime to see that unity break up because it doesn't last. Because David's own sin and corruption is going to cause disruption in the kingdom. But his words are still true. There, verse 3, in Zion, the city of God, the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore because it's the same city, it's the same place, but outside the walls where the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives his innocent life as a sacrificial offering for our guilty lives and for our sins and there to redeem us from our own little kingdoms and unify us into a people for his own name. And the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is that which unifies us together as the people of God that we believe in Jesus Christ, we embrace His sacrifice for us. And so the direction of the New Testament is to live like it then. To live like it. Because 
the two great threats to the unity of the church in the New Testament are false teaching and division within the body. There is false teaching that comes from the outside and ties, tries to infect the church to divide, but then there is the internal pressure, social pressure, disagreements even over silly things that tend to divide. In fact, the Apostle Paul sometimes goes so far as even naming names, not giving details about what the spat was about, but in one particular instance, Paul just writes, tell those two to agree. Tell them to get on. And the fundamental principle of this together, life together in the church of Jesus Christ, what drives that unity, believing that God gives it, what will keep that unity is the principle that we draw from the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.3, how do we maintain the unity of the church? He writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's his way of saying, prefer one another. Look for opportunities to defer to one another and honor one another in love. Not to demand. Not to insist. Not to say it's my way or the highway and it's got to be this way or I'm gone. But to say with David, it's good and pleasant when we dwell in unity. And we are called as the people of God to give ourselves to the maintenance of that unity. Now that happens on, on multiple levels. But one very important level that it happens at that you as a whole congregation should know is that it happens on the level of the session, the officers of the, the church, the elders. Some people have the idea that session members are there representing themselves or representing their own interests or even are acting as, if you like, elected officials representing the interests of the congregation. But the first responsibility of an elder of the church is not to decide for what's good for themselves or even what's good for groups of people, but to seek the mind of Jesus Christ and to know His will that His name would be honored amongst the people. What is good for the name of Christ here? That's just one guiding principle that our church officers work with. What is good for the body? And so the Apostle Paul reminds us in the strain of what David is saying to not prefer ourselves, to pursue sacrificing, to pursue humility and to pursue patience, to look for opportunities, to lay down our preference rather than demand it because... It's a beautiful thing when we're united together. And that's not to say there won't be threats, and that's not to say there won't be disagreements, and that's not to say there won't be struggles at various times. But is there something that is far exceeding the importance of whatever it is we're disagreeing about that will unite us? And the answer is yes. Always. If we keep our eyes on it. If we keep our eyes on what David is saying, that the Lord has given his blessing to the people of God in union and communion together. And because you and I want to be a part of a, a church family and a, a people of God that exalts Christ and celebrates that unity, we look for opportunities to prefer one another, to honor one another, and say with David, it is good and pleasant for us to dwell together in unity. So people of God, may that unity bless us 
as we look toward coming together again and celebrating with joy the union and communion we have with Christ and with one another. Amen. And now let us sing Psalm 133 together to the tune of the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Let's sing together. How good it is and pleasant to a witness pure and right when brothers live in unity together in delight it is like God, we thank you that you give unity as a blessing. We pray that seeing that it comes down from heaven, that we might be moved by the spirit of your name to so preserve that unity in the bond of peace, magnifying the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for the officers of our church. I pray for the committee members and the leaders of our church at every level that we might be the people of God in true communion and unity, blessing the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, providing a testimony of glory and beauty and winsome reality to the world around us that lives in a fractured world and longs to see a communion of love. And so, Lord, may we as a church represent that communion of love that exists within you, the triune God. And so may it manifest amongst us to the glory of your name and for our everlasting joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.